Welcome back to the Hustle Podcast. Today, I'm here with Justin Dower, Vice President of Human Centered Design and Development at B-Swift, which is a CVS health company. He is the author of Creative Culture, Human Centered Interaction, Design, and Inspiration. The second edition of that book is releasing in June of 2020. You can find out more information about that on the-culturebook.com. He's also the host of the Creative Culture Podcast. Justin, thanks for making time to be on the show. I know, I know it took a while for us to get this coordinated, but I, I really appreciate your patience with that process. No, no, not at all, Anthony. It's, it's great to be here. I appreciate what you're doing with the podcast, so I'm happy to, happy to talk things through today. For like, from one podcaster to another, how are you finding recording in this sort of weird situation the world is in right now? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, everyone needs a degree of patience. Uh, you'll you'll probably hear my co-hosts in the background, which are my two kids. So, finding time to do the podcast is challenging. I'm also, you know, I was in the midst of recording the audiobook version of of Creative Culture, and uh, obviously that's put on hold as well because there's literally no stretch of two and a half minutes throughout the day where there's not noise of some sort. So, it, you know, everyone's just getting by. Everyone's just being respectful of one another, and that's that's just the way it is right now. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show because the, you know, I, I learned about your book and some of your talks from, I don't know, saw something on Twitter and I just kind of followed the path and, and reached out. I'm really glad that I did because the, the type of stuff that you talk about are the things that I, that I obsess with every day. Um, yeah. And so I'm really, really excited to unpack all of that and have a conversation with you. I was hoping yeah. that you could just maybe say a few words about who you are and what you do just so everyone gets caught to speed on, on what you're all about. Yeah, certainly. So um, I, I kind of start out as uh, uh, when the term web design was something our moms and dads uh, didn't quite know what that means. So I've been I've been around the block, so to speak, in design. I've been in the field, I don't know, a while, over probably 20, 21 years in design in various capacities. So I, I'm formally trained in design from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago with a degree in visual communications. But at that time, you know, web design, UX, curriculum didn't exist. UX, you know, uh, in terms of a moniker, didn't exist then. Uh, Self-taught code uh, while I was at the Art Institute, that kind of infusion of the raw, I'm going to sound, you know, artificially profound, but that infusion of design against the digital landscape was incredibly appealing to me, that raw internet, what we can do, what we can explore at that time. So made a shift to digital design after being, you know, trained and, and uh, studying about, you know, uh, Muir Brockman and Sutnar and went from uh, typographic letterpress over to digital design and, and graphic design. And uh, over the course of 20 years, that design and, and the responsibility inherent in design and, and visual communication is really informed my passion. And, and I've been in tech and agency side and studio side and in-house, out-of-house, uh, freelance for a bit. Um, all that kind of worldly experience, I think, has really paid off and, and shaped, you know, who I am today. And I think a lot of the negative experiences I've had with design and culture have been profound uh, for me and, and impacted me in, in a positive sense, because you kind of learn uh, that there are ways to do it right. And there are places that do it right. So that, you know, fueled uh, the book strongly and fueled, you know, why I'm sitting here in front of you right now. Awesome. Well, before we get into the book, what can you say about what kind of organization B-Swift is? It's a CVS healthcare company, but I don't know too much about it. Uh, tell us about the group that you work with and the kinds of things that you're, you and your team are working on every day. 
Yep. B-Swift is both a company and the name of a platform and effectively any means of uh, enrolling in your healthcare benefits, which is, you know, a timely thing online. B-Swift is an online platform, uh, enrolling in benefits, uh, managing a life event, uh, you know, getting married or a birth of a child, uh, death in the family. That's all managed via our platform. So we help people engage in their benefits in a very intuitive uh, and usable way. Uh, Aetna owns B-Swift, CVS Health owns Aetna, so that's kind of the uh, relationship tree there. And I joined B-Swift to impart human-centered design in a way that provided the most value. And healthcare is such a challenge in the States, and and, and people engaging with their benefits in times of uh, crisis, in times of calm, uh, the application of putting people first I felt I could do good good work there. I was in the agency space for probably 10, 15 years in various capacities and leadership. And that wasn't cutting the mustard for me in terms of satiating my creative soul, so to speak. Again, not to sound profound. Um, so, so healthcare and, and doing good work there, doing good design and human-centered work um, is really scratching the itch now. And that, that's, that's what we do on a day-to-day basis. That's awesome. Um, I would imagine that you guys are or any anyone that's working in the healthcare space is probably really busy right now, which is good. Um, yeah. yeah. But, so, what's the team like over there? Like, what can you say about like the what's the DNA of the team, the size of the team? Um, unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I need to see um, a therapist or or what about this, but a, a different therapist. But I can't take on roles that are teed up and ready to go. Just I can't come into a, an organization or a role and it's just like here's here's the perfect situation. All the process is set. Teams are ready to rock. You know, just come in and, and kick your feet up and, and you know clock in and clock out. I, I always have to take on something that's a project or a challenge or. Something where I can actually impart value rather than just, you know, getting my name on an office and, and a nice business card. So uh, I joined B-Swift, and I mentioned why I got into healthcare, but it, B-Swift had a, a UX team, which is doing tremendous work. But I wanted to, like I said, apply human-centered design to where it's needed most, where you engage with people. So I built that team up uh, from a UX team into a human-centered design practice where UX doesn't define what we do, but it's a a portion of our artifacts and the value that we provide. So uh, I built up a research practice um, from the ground up within the organization. Obviously, research is paramount to uh, an HCD practice. And, and just getting, uh, bringing people along for the ride and engaging people, uh, the very people who are going to uh, integrate and interact with our product. Um, so research practice, bit all the usability lab, all in-house. We do all our own testing, our own reporting, uh, hired researchers, designers, UX architects. Front-end development also reports to me, which I think is, is key to have the integration between design and development and make sure it's not as silent as possible. So mm-hmm. everyone's in all the same meetings that they can attend, and, and there are no surprises. No one's siloed, um, and that makes the process really streamlined. So it's been really rewarding to build that process up over three years, but we're in a really good spot now. Wow, that's awesome. So now that we understand a little bit about what you're doing, let's talk about the book. Tell me, like, give me the the quick overview of the, of the summary of the book. Sure. So the impetus for the book was I wrote a piece for a list apart called resetting agency culture. And I was burned mm-hmm. out on agencies at that point. And I wrote about not only the detriments to working in agencies and agencies have a lot of inherent issues. Many agencies do, but many do it right. 
And the lens was through ways to do it right, to be, I'll say, I, I keep using that word human-centered, and that means a lot of different things to different people, but long story short, treating people the way you want to be treated, I think is at the core of it, the golden rule that we're taught, you know, when we're in kindergarten. So I wrote that article through the lens of the agency, but the feedback I got was from people in all forms of media, newspaper, television, radio, uh, all people reaching out, and it, real, it made me realize the lens I'd given it was too narrow, and it was less about the agency experience and more about the human experience. So I, I realized the concept was bigger and I started writing a book about it called Cultivating a Creative Culture. And I, at the time I was working for an agency that was Swedish founded. And a lot of those Swedish and, and Scandinavian values just resonated with me to such a tremendous degree that uh, level of egalitarianism and respect and humility yeah. And it's kind of a swear word to say everyone has a seat at, a seat at the table. Ignore, ignore the verbiage applied to that, but that spirit of that, that everyone, you know, everyone's voice is valued, that resonated with me to such a tremendous degree, and I leveraged a lot of that for that first book. Um, and then for this second edition, uh, which took me about uh, three years to, to get through, uh, you know, in, in tandem with speaking engagements and podcasts like these, I wanted to greater put the lens on the synergies between design process and, and culture uh, within an organization. And there are so many touch points about putting people first in both processes and being inclusive and being respectful and, and taking time to pause and not rushing through to just you know be a, a production factory. That's what the second edition is about. And it's almost, it's almost twice as long as the first. And I've, I've, I've kind of put a lot of that experience over the last three years into this book uh, with a lot more insights from industry leaders. Um, and, I, you know, I'm really proud of it. You just answered the next question I was going to ask you um, about what, what the difference between these, these books. Like, I'm sure that, you know, a lot of people think about these things. Not a lot of people write about them. I think about these things all the time because that's the reason why I founded this company with my sure. wife. Like we we founded this company specifically for the reason of like, okay, well, we're lucky enough to be in a position where we could start a company and we've seen what what doesn't work. We know there's a better way to do that. Like what would happen if you really took a people first approach? Yep. O- often a lot of times people ask me what what we mean when we when we say people first. I'm curious like how we, how would you define that? When you say people first, you mentioned that earlier, what, do you, what does that mean to you? It means that people are viewed not as resources or names in an Excel spreadsheet, that they're actually viewed as individuals. I could say people first are viewing the individual, people as individuals first. People are not resources uh, is, is what it comes down to. You know, that, that's the culture side of things. and the design side of things, it means not rushing out just to release, just not to hit release, 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 getting something out to market, crank, crank, crank it out. It's about pausing and slowing down and thinking about the big picture and those who are actually going to interact with what we're releasing into the world on the design side of things. And that's where I feel like those, those hallmarks of touch points internally, externally, they're, they're there for the taking and they're right for the taking. And, and doing it right isn't about just because it feels good. It actually impacts on, on how you're perceived in the market and how you're perceived internally and how, how it impacts retention within a business. There are just so many so many bullet points of, of value beyond, like I said, just, just feeling warm and fuzzy about it. That, that's what it means to me. I'm curious, you know, as you've grown your business, how has it impacted you and how your brand is perceived too? Well, I'll try not to talk too much because this is really about you, but most of my experience has been in agency. I worked in, my wife and I both worked in a lot of agencies in New York. You know, my wife worked in a lot of agencies like RGA, places like that. Uh, we both have been in 
companies where we were felt appreciated and were in places where we didn't feel appreciated. But I think the overwhelming majority of our collective experiences that we weren't appreciated, right? Like when right. your average day entails like waking up and starting work at nine in the morning and you're still working in the studio at two o'clock in the morning. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and that's like an average day like that. There's something wrong about that. Like I do think that things have kind of changed over, over time a little bit because I think uh, design is, a, is thought of a little bit different, but to us it really means that like we make all of our decisions based on people first. So like for our company, even though we're in a service business, you know, we'll turn down revenue if it means that people first, right? Like, we, we're not like slacking off, you know, like we're doing serious work, but we think that, you know, you need serious time to invest into people's growth, development, also rotations, you know. So we, we do something called Method Week where we close the studio down for a week every quarter and we just invest in our people. Some of our clients love that and that's the reason why they work with us and the reason why they refer us. We have other clients that are vocal that that causes friction in their business, which I can understand, but like yep. be, it's important to us because it's a part of the reason why people stay at our company for three, four, five, six years plus. Yep. Most We've only been in business for seven years, but the majority of our staff has been with us for four years plus. And so retaining those people and keeping that trust that they've developed impacts the work for our clients that, you know, long-term, it's valuable to everyone to think these ways. So. Absolutely. I think I might go a little bit over. Sometimes I wonder if I'm going overboard because, you know, like I think a lot of agencies, at least in experiences I had, will be like, oh, you're going to work on this thing. Have fun. Right. Our approach to that is different. Our approach is like, what is it that really drives you? Like, how can we find the right project for you? And we'll go seek that workout, even if it means like changing the kind of work that we do in the studio or allowing Mm -hmm. people to build new practices or disciplines because we know that the only thing that we have as value as a as a services business is our people so it seems just no-brainer that they should be the most important thing it seems like that from a business owner's perspective but i i guess for some businesses it's not i think you could say with a lot of things like this it seems like it should make sense to just you know hire someone and treat them like a a human being but like these things that should all be layups are so often the things that are missed so i mean it's it's an unfortunate unfortunate thing in our business yeah. And I think, I, I, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I think I often think about, I think it was a Maya, An, Maya Angelou quote, like, I actually don't know who said this, but I, I use it in a presentation that I did one time. It's like, well, people are not going to really remember what you worked on together 20 years from now, but they'll remember how they made each other feel. Right. Mm-hmm. And those mm-hmm. are the people that, you know, will introduce, like, it might be someone that works under you that five years from now is going to hire you. Or, or talk about you. And, and these things impact your people's futures and career and brand, like you pointed out. And so I think that like by championing people, like we, we have elevated our brand. Like do we maybe have the same revenues that other agencies have? Maybe not because we've made decisions because of that. But right. I, I, just think it's, I, I just think it's so important. I'm curious for you as someone that, thinks about this stuff, right? It very deeply and passionately, yet you work in corporate America. Like how does your, mm-hmm. how does your company feel about your feelings about these things? Like, is it embraced? Did it make a big uh, difference on why you were brought into the organization? Like how are they receptive to the things that you're, that you're talking about and championing? Yeah. No, and you make a good point that I do wear my heart in my sleeve as far as this is concerned. And 
I'm in a bit of a position of privilege in the organization. So I am a VP and I report to the CTO um, and he is completely respectful of the way I, I operate and, and the value that the way I operate brings to the table. Uh, so that's at, at the team and org level at B-Swift. And then as you go up the tree, um, our parent company is respectful of the way we operate in our culture because they know we get the job done and they know we have strong retention uh, because of the, there's that strong baseline of, of respect and and uh, empathy towards one another. But uh, at the team level, I, I have a good amount of leeway uh, to, to operate and run things as, as I, I see fit. And, and that always comes back to putting people first. So the way I onboard people, for example, um, I, I like people to start on a Friday instead of a Monday. And this is, this is all things in the book. And I call that the new day one because I like a different momentum rather than someone starting on Monday and having five days, you know, lined up where, you know, they're in, odd, or they're in training or, you know, getting their email set up and, and orientation. And that, that stuff's all fine. But I've also been in roles where I've started at 9 a.m. And, you know, no one on the team knew who I was or why I was there. And then at 9.30, I was already working on a project. And I know nothing <laughs> about the business. And, you know, it, so it's not super uncommon. That's hap- happened more yeah. than once. But th- yeah. those are the, I mean, when I bring people in on a Friday and, and we, I, I make sure I'm greeting them at the door like a human being. And everything is, everything is lined up seamlessly. So they come in, their computer's on their desk. There's a, maybe a card signed by the team welcoming them again connecting on a human level we go out to lunch we talk about informal things we go out to a cafe after that we talk shop a little bit and then i say take me someplace in the city that inspires you and at that point you often get deer in headlights looks or you get an immediate answer and the intent there is i want to understand the person and the individual and what inspires them outside of a portfolio or, or, or what their design influence or creative influence is outside of their social media, their URL. And when you get these spatial, this spatial understanding and we go to a place and I've had someone like take me south of the city. And again, I'm, I'm in Chicago and south of the city. And we look at the skyline, uh, this little area by the museum of science, science and industry. And this is an actual example and we go there, and it's not just like, this is a great view. Okay, let's go home. But we go there, and I want to find out, like, why are we here? Why did you bring me here? And, and sometimes this emotional thing. And, uh, you know, I, I, we're here because I was at a point of, of life change, and I wanted to make a career shift, and I was in a lucrative position before, but I wanted to leap over to UX, and maybe I would have made money, maybe I wouldn't have. And I have a kid, and it was very stressful, and I came here to think about it. And that's tremendous, because then you see empathy is driving them, and humility is driving them. And that they, they were in their previous role before because they like to connect to people and they wanted to bring that over to UX. So you all get all these different understandings about them as a person and what they're going to bring to the table as an individual. That a resume would never yield. So, again, that's, that's how I bring people into the fold of my, in my team and, and my, my organization. And that, that's completely respected. Or on Wednesdays, I make sure everyone stops working at 9.30 a.m. and I run a meeting called Creative Inspiration Wednesday and everyone brings in something that has inspired them and then their work from the previous week. And that could be a, a restaurant they ate at. Well, not nowadays, but that could have been a restaurant they did eat at before or a piece of music they heard or a movie they watched. And they don't just talk about it. We watch it. Or we, we listen to the music and there are people walking by in the hall who hear someone listening to music at 9.30 in the morning in a, in a corporate environment, like you said, and they stop and they come over and they, they want to know what's going on and they want to engage as well. And then you build those different little synapses and those, those different connections uh, very organically. So it's kind of a beautiful thing to behold. So 
those kind of things are, are feel good. They also bring value because we connect well. We have a tremendous synergy in the way we operate uh, as a team. Everyone is very uh, empathetic and humble uh, toward one another. I have a tremendous uh, retention rate. No one's left yet, uh, you know, in three and a half years. And that's kind of applied throughout my career as well. So, you know, if you want to look at metrics and, and put science to what's going on there, you know, the numbers are there. Uh, and the, the numbers are certainly appreciated by my boss as well. So a bit of a bloated answer, but uh, there's, there's more to it than just feeling good. There's, there's actual data behind it as well. Yeah, that's awesome. We have low retention. We we have had people leave. I mean, it's been seven years. But yeah. when people leave, the first thing that I do is I help them find their next job if they want that help, right? Like, yep. if someone is telling me that they're leaving, I don't even see that as a necessarily a bad thing as long as their experience has been good. And like, I think, sure. I think that often people are scared to tell their boss that they're unhappy or that they're leaving. But I've tried to do everything that I can to make sure people feel comfortable talking about those things because... I mean, let's face it, like, you know, like most people are going to work for one company for forever anymore. The least that we could do as leaders help people figure, connect the dots and the connections and pull open the Rolodex and help people like do what they want to do. And it doesn't take that much effort to like understand the human beings that work for us and what drives them and what they're interested in and try to connect the dots, you know. It doesn't take that uh, much time. Okay. I have a few right. questions for you. I have Shoot. A, hand, a handful of questions here and, you know, feel free to, you know, steer it in different directions, but yep. you mentioned in, a, in an article that designers and developers have an advantage in solving cultural problems in business. I was wondering if you could explain why. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that, that's a question I, I certainly appreciate. The way we are trained to create uh, in a research capacity via observation and design, you know, I'll say human-centered design again, people first, uh, the spirit of people first, being empathetic towards those we're creating for and putting ourselves in the shoes of those who are going to engage with the experiences and, and co-designing with them and, like I said before, bring them along for the ride in the process and, and understanding the responsibility inherent in what we do Everything we do in design and visual communication and programmatic communication uh, has a tremendous amount of responsibility to it and understanding uh, understanding that and appreciating that. Those values, I'll use that word values, in terms of how we create directly apply to being good with one another and being respectful with one another and taking time to do things right, uh, not not the, at the expense of or not letting the bottom line drive us we're, we're like just just like we're data informed but not data driven that that same kind of mentality those values and the way we are trained to function and i think if you're in design you know you're not a nine to five person clocking in and of course you know i don't mean in a work-life balance sense but you're in it because you're passionate about it by and large applying uh you know that level of problem solving to a visual or programmatic way and and leveraging those values and that that thinking to the way we operate culturally it's just a natural thing it's just a very natural thing to do and and you'll often see ux people and designers and and developers elevate culture because of those values that come very naturally to them so that's the kind of connect the dots lines i'm trying to draw there is that those people are organic leaders uh by and large in, in a cultural sense because that's just the way they they work every day yeah I, I think that's really fascinating and i don't think of our people as a product but i think of the program as a product so mm-hmm. one of the things that we do is we try to like we we see our employees as users of customers of our product 
and then just we just use the same tactics that we use with clients to do this you know retrospectives um, yep. innovation opportunity workshops all those things and and you know like sure everyone's busy and only you may only be able to move this you know move the needle in a few areas but it goes a long way when you take time just to like listen to the right. people that are are engaged with what, what you're doing i'm kind of curious just on a personal level did you experience any challenges personally as you went on the change from being a independent contributor to being a a, a manager or oh, yeah. did that feel very natural for you no no, absolutely not. It did not. I, I feel like so. It, it was a it was a bit of a painful transition. And I think candor here is the only way to go uh, to talk about it. In that, my sense of fulfillment was lacking. Like I, my identity throughout my career and in my early career, like I said, the raw web uh, design and applying uh, you know design uh, visual communication and raw creativity to the web got me a lot of exposure. I, if anyone remembers um, Caliber Ten Thousand K Ten K dot net, I was news news author on there, and a lot of the design I did at that time got some good exposure. And I, I my identity was tied to that that design and that feedback. It was it was kind of like a drug that reception of work. So I learned a couple things at that point. I learned humility for certain because I didn't have much of it at that point because of the reception of work. But going from design and my identity being tied to design to my and my fulfillment being tied to design to my fulfillment being uh, associated with the other people's work and other people's quality and other people's evolution. That was a shift. That was a shift for me. You know, you know, the humility. Um, thankfully, I, I, I was able to evolve in that sense fairly early in my career. But th- that other part of shifting from design and fulfillment to managerial and fulfillment, uh, it, it took some work and it took some uh, dialogues with peers to identify what the problem was. Because I would come home and I would feel depressed because you know my role was shifting. And I would, you know, maybe 50% of my day was doing design, then 25%, then 10%, then barely at all, which is, which is where it's at now, which is, which is exactly yeah. where I need to be. But it, it was, it was a shift and it was some, a lot of looking inward, a lot of talking to my peers who had gone through a similar shifts about that transition of fulfillment to uh, helping other people along their way and achieving their goals and helping them with their success and their evolution. And now I, I can't imagine any other way now that I'm, uh, you know, in my early 40s. I feel very at home with that. And, and now my fulfillment is directly tied to that. And I, I get a great deal of fulfillment from that, from seeing other people succeed and, and advocating for my team and advocating for process. Like I said, taking on challenges in, in that capacity. And now I also see my other managers uh, going through the exact same thing, exact same thing. And it, it's, it feels great to be able to help them along that journey as well. So, you know, again, short answer to your question, no, it was not an easy thing to go through. And I, I suspect a lot of managers in transition go through the same thing as in kind. Yeah. I, I talked to enough people on this show about these things. It feels like it's 50, 50, like some people are just n- like naturally inclined and the other half are just like, no, I, it's like, like it was not natural for me either. Like I, yeah, I went through a, a long period of de- a depression dealing with the feeling that I was giving up something that I thought I was doing. Yep. But really what I had been doing is, like putting people around me to fill in gap skills gaps anyway. So like I just, right. right but what, right. but you know, but still like I, I do care about people and I care about being a manager, but I, I still think at a personal level, 
it's important for us to be happy. The one thing that makes me feel happy is knowing that, okay, well, you know, the next generation of designers are, are growing and also that I'm able to use some of that experience as a designer and use those design skills a bit about designing people. I feel like yep. if those things yep. weren't, if that, if those dots weren't connected, it would be really hard for me to just do this, uh, do this every day. Um, yeah, I, I respect that. So about empathy and human centered thinking, right? It's, it's one thing if a leader understands that and can like sort of get their team to work that way, but it's maybe a little bit of a different challenge to get them to think about that working that way with their peers. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just, I'm just curious. How do you instill these values and concepts of empathy and, and this way of looking at the whole organism of the, or of the, of the org, but get your team to think about that with each other? Like how do they, what, what things do you do to help them think about each other? I guess is the question that I'm asking. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, in in actions over words. I mean, I am completely respectful and and empathetic towards my team and viewing them as individuals above anything else, uh, always. So I make that crystal clear as soon as they're brought brought on to to the team. I mean, in in the hiring process, in the interview process, I lay all the cards out on the table about how my team operates. And I mentioned, you know, the creative inspiration Wednesday to the way we operate to how, you know, what my team's values are, uh, in terms of being respectful and empathetic towards one another. So I just put it all out there. And, and some people you could see are all about it. And some people it, that's maybe not what fulfills them. Um, so I think from the get go, just in terms of how we're talking about our team, even in the interview process, when, when the coronavirus lockdown in various uh, mechanisms was taking place in various levels of severity to where we are now, and straight out of the gate, I was in, I was in a hiring process, and I asked the uh, candidate, this is very early on, to not come in. Um, I mean, before our business had closed, before the governor of our state had, had asked people to work from home. Just because if I was this person coming in and uh, with these things in the news and taking public transportation, and I didn't want any stress or any impositions just from the get-go, man, just, just from the... First, whether or not they accepted the role, which which they have, and now they're they're working with uh, they're on my team. So, I think just the way you treat someone, uh, and again, this I, I could put out a manifesto, or I could I could you know put print out and put it to the, to the door of my office, and that that's that's a bunch of BS. I think actions are are always always lead, and, and the team absolutely uh, you know jives with that and resonates that in the way the way we uh, treat one another. It, it's very organic. It's very organic. And, uh, you know, I, I make nothing uh, an unknown quantity. Like I said, I wear my heart in my sleeve in this sense. And I, I told people from the, as soon as I started, this is how I, I like like to operate. This is what I think the team's value should be. And just to see what people thought. Now, I said, do you think this is BS or not? And uh, I, I always kind of say that, you know, well, what do you think? And, and people said it just fit. It just, you know, resonated with, with the way people wanted to work and the way. A lot of people were burned in previous instances as well, and they recognize the opportunity and appreciate the opportunity to have that out there, that we want to be respectful with one another. So, yeah, actions over words, uh, long story short, is is how it's felt and how it, it translates to everyone else. And, and, and by operating in that manner, it's just a very seamless and organic thing. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I often have dreams about the people in my life that were the good, like, 
the managers that I've had. Like I, I still dream about these people, and like sometimes I'll I'll wake up in the middle of the night like feeling like uh, with a dream where I was back in this other environment, and I I don't know. I just these things consume me. Some people catch on to these things like really quickly. Others takes time. But I think that the thing that I think is really important is that there's, you know, there's a certain amount of people that will take these things that are important like this and eventually put them into practice and when they're in a leadership position. And they just, people just, just like in everything else in life, people just need good role models and someone to fight for right. them. Right. Um, uh, just changing pace a little bit, like I'm so stoked that you said K10K because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I also went to the Art Institute. I'm an Art Institute dude as well. I, I was in the Art Institute in Dallas in the late 90s. and Okay. Uh, I, was, I, w- I wish I'd have gone to the visual design program. I went through the multimedia program. If, if it wasn't for things like K10K and Nick Fink's blog and stuff like that, like I, I don't know if I'd be here. Uh, anyway, that's just that. Those days were just so amazing. I, you know, oh, yeah. a, a lot of the young designers right now don't even realize like what that was like. I mean, it real like it, it was before like you kind of said it yourself. Like designing for the web was an artistic expression, right? Like there were no patterns, there were no carousel. Like everything was yep, different, and yep, that was a yep. beautiful, beautiful time. Uh, it's always awesome when I talk to someone that like remembers that. Uh, it was a really special time. Okay. Back to culture. What do you think the signs are of a bad stifling culture? And what kind of picture can you paint of what could potentially go wrong if you don't put people first? I think the, the bad signs, first of all, are, are pretty obvious because it usually comes from leadership. And people are usually, instead of leaving companies, are leaving their intended mentors or their supposed leaders. So I think... When a leader sets the bad precedent in terms of treating people as resources instead of individuals and throwing them under the bus in design reviews and critiques and, you know, ha- having those daggers in the eyes, if you if you dare to pause in the cafe or, uh, you know, the cafeteria of your work and talk with somebody about something that isn't business related, those are all hallmarks of a poisonous culture led by a toxic uh, toxic manager. And I've absolutely been in that situation before. Every, everything I just kind of listed out, if you qualify as a bullet point, uh, you know, I've gone through in my career, and I suspect those who are going to listen to this podcast in some capacity or all of those capacities have endured uh, much of that as well. So when you see a toxic culture, and if, you know, if... You know, you have kids and you have to pick somebody up at three o'clock or the kid is sick and somebody's tapping their watch and looking at you like, oh, you got a half day today? Like that kind of BS. And those passive aggressive jokes are just like daggers in your chest in terms of uh, wanting to be empathized with. Um, And that when that stuff is tolerated at the leadership level and then people just know they can get away with it or, you know, just those bad behaviors are are bred throughout the organization. Um, So I'll keep bringing it back to leadership has to set the example there. I think brand and culture are absolutely synonymous with one another. And when culture is toxic, I think that directly bleeds over to the brand and retention and the way people um, 
now with social media being right rife and, and the way people talk on Twitter and, and very candidly about organizations, it's just it's just brutal for them as well to, uh, for tension and, and things things of that nature. So when leaders set the tone by and large in, a, in, a, in an unhealthy capacity um, on all those levels of dehumanization and like you said, working uh, working from nine to two a.m. I, I, I literally interviewed at a place at a time. And I've used these, this anecdote in, in previous interviews of cots being out in the office, and I said, "Why are there cots here?" And they said, "Because sometimes we sleep here overnight, or we have to crash here because the, you know there's we have to get something out the door later." We do yeah? I mean, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, absolutely ridiculous. And they, they, you know, it's like being in an abusive relationship when this, when this was communicated to me, the person just said it like they were talking, asked me what the, uh, how, how, how am I doing today? Or asked me about, about the weather. So some of it's very obvious like that. That's an obvious example. And I, I experienced it and I like to use it because it's a little ridiculous, but like, like I said, there are a lot of passive aggressive things as well, like half day today, like that kind of BS. So just keeping your peepers open, we're, we're trained to observe, uh, you know, if you're a researcher, that's a, a large part of what you do and applying those skills and design again to culture, that cultural lens. And like you asked me before, how, how, how do designers and developers have a unique advantage? Uh, we can spot these things, man. We can, we can detect, we can detect BS. We can, we can see when we're being marginalized or treated like garbage or treated like uh, a name in an Excel spreadsheet. So um, a lot of it's obvious. A lot of it's not so obvious, but the the factors are certainly certainly there. Cool. Let's talk about you a little bit. What keeps you up at night? Or I mean, maybe you don't. Maybe you're not up in the middle of the night. But like, what is it that like is you're you're just really obsessed about, or that you might be losing sleep over, or think about when you wake up in the morning? Yeah, I think about any time I might have let someone down. And I, I don't say that to be trite in any capacity or, you know, just because that's my a, a part of my my brand, so to speak, or I write about it. But anytime I know I could have done better by someone uh, in design process, in a cultural interaction, I'm very self-critical uh, in that sense. And I'll replay that over and over in my head. Um, so anytime I drop the ball, uh, I have a hard time letting go in that sense. So that, that keeps me up at night. And, uh, I, you know, I do my damnedest to make sure that that doesn't happen, you know, particularly at the, at this stage in my career. But, uh, say I am having a busy day and I'm pulled into a bunch of meetings, there's fires to put out, but someone else uh, is having issues as well on my team. And I, I, you know, could I have given them more time? Could I, could I have, you know, figured something else out? Uh, I, I you know, I, I put the microscope on myself, certainly in terms of how I could have advocated for people more or, or been a better, a better leader. And I think that helps me be a better leader because I, because I, I have that level of scrutiny on myself, but yeah, I'm pretty self self-critical in that sense. Uh, that, that, that does keep me up if I feel like I, I could have done better. So. Thanks for sharing that. So you spend like me, I'm, I'm sure you spend most of your time thinking about your team their hopes, their dreams, their desires, their futures, their development, their yep. happiness. Yep. What about you? How are you making sure that your hopes, your dreams, your your desires, your future career is being taken taken care of? I have a pretty good sense of what satiates me. And, and right now, um, like I said, uh, d- doing design for good as it applies to healthcare and people, uh, you know, uh, for example, I, I have my researchers and, and those in my design team, we, we have a, a, a few call centers, but I had them always, 
with a with a good cadence going up to our call center and, and listening in on calls and uh you know often people are calling us under duress because they you know they're having trouble engaging with their benefits or they can't get in and someone's coverage is about the lapse and uh, that level of connection and helping people out uh at t- in times of calm uh in times of of duress that satiates me very much uh, right now. And like I said, design is a responsibility. Culture is, or is uh, the way we treat one another is a responsibility broadly. So that, that, that fulfills me for certain. Growing a team, helping people succeed, uh, helping people's quality and, 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 and their roles, uh, supporting their evolution, that, that fulfills me for certain. And I, I have a, an ample amount of that in my role right now. At the same time, I'm one of those people who can never turn it off. So I come home, and uh, I, I have to be a father. I have to be a, a spouse and, and a husband and, and, a, and a good partner. There are things to do here. That all winds up maybe, I don't know, 9 o'clock. And at that point, I have a hard time relaxing. I need to do something. I need to be creating something. I need a side project. I have to be learning. I have to read blogs. Uh, I have to understand how I can evolve my skills or better my management chops or something like that. I, I just can't turn it off. And that's, that's been great for my career. It's been great for uh, my evolution uh, in corporate life. It's been great for my success, you know, with things like the book and, and speaking engagements away from that. But it's also exhausting as well. But, you know, it's, it's also, like I said, I can't turn it off. Uh, that, that's just the kind of person I am. I have to always be tinkering and desi- designing and having a side project. I don't design at the office like we just talked about. So I always have a side project. And, and the book has been an, a hell of an outlet for me in that capacity, writing and designing, creating and art directing. That, that's been awesome and super rewarding. So as long as I'm, I'm in motion as a designer and I'm, I'm growing and I'm humble about that evolution, I'm always a student of my craft and I'm, I'm open to uh, growth, that keeps me going. And that, that keeps me going. It's really awesome listening to you talk because I think of, out of all the people that I've had on this show over the last six years, I think that maybe you and I have more in common than anyone that ever, that I've ever talked with. And I think that we should probably keep talking. Like we, we always say have an end to this podcast, but I'm really connecting with what you're saying. And I, I feel the same way about a lot of, a lot of the things that you're saying. Um, awesome. What do you think that this year within your design organization is going to be, your biggest challenge and what do you think is going to be the biggest opportunity? I think the challenge right now, and and this is, you know, going to be no surprise to anyone, but it's, it's remote working and it's not like, you know, working from home once or twice a week. Like this is, this is life now. This is the way we function. This is the way we create. This is the way we still manage our deliverables, but at the same time, keeping people engaged. Like I think right now as a leader and a manager, it's, it's going to do one of two things. It's going to amplify what you can do as a manager in a positive sense and how you help people grow and help people connect because you have to learn new ways of working and new ways of connecting. Or it's going to reinforce your negative behaviors. And because I can't see my team outside my door, I'm going to micromanage them even more. I'm going to backseat create, creative direct them even more. I'm going to demand that they check in with me 50 more times. So I think that lens is going to turn one, uh, you know, either way, either side of the coin there. Uh, For me, uh, I I think the challenge is engagement, keeping the team involved, keeping the team connecting, uh, making sure 
because we're in these dire straits, people still know that they're supported and people know that I, I value them and view them as a human being. And, uh, you know, when we do our kick off the week meeting, we, we go around and we ask one another to give, you know, affirmation for their teammates. What do you, what do you appreciate? What, what, if, what if, if someone has something to say that is for that week, like, what you know, you know, so-and-so helped me out on a project. And I really appreciate they got me back every week. I, I start that with saying, I appreciate you all. I appreciate everything you're going through right now. Everyone's just trying to get through. And I, I said, I don't expect you to be at hundred percent. No one does. And you know, people can read this on Twitter and stuff like that. They need to hear that from me. My team needs to hear that from me, that I'm telling them that I know you're going through a lot. I don't expect you to be at your laptop from nine to five. Uh, you're going to have off days. You're going to have on days. You're, you're going to be depressed sometimes. I'm, I'm depressed sometimes. Being as humble and, and, and candid about things like that, I, I think, is only going to help. So I think a challenge is keeping everyone engaged and, and knowing that they're supported and valued. And we do things like we have standing coffee times where people come on and just, you know, they shoot the shit for a half hour. And I, I insist they don't talk about work um, and they slow down and we pause and we connect as human beings or like, you, you know, we have, uh, you know, after hour happy hours where people just come on and, and then we have a, a, a Zoom or a WebEx open and we just connect uh, one-on-ones, I have to make sure that people are still feeling connected and supported. And again, it's not me saying, what are you doing? Are you working? It's me saying, can I help you? Can I help you succeed? Are you having any pitfalls? Are you having any technical issues? Can I, can I triage that for you? So I think it's incumbent upon uh, leaders and, and managers in design and hell, any field right now to make sure their team knows uh, these things. The, the value is there. And the opportunity is it helps us learn new ways of working and new ways of collaborating. And that's, that's, what, that's what it's all about, man, is, is slowing down to figure those things out. And sometimes it's with an offsite camp or things like that where we just focus on that. Now we're kind of doing it on the job, so to speak, these different ways of working and figure out new tools. So I think there's going to be some value called from that under, under straits that, you know, people haven't experienced in <laughs> a long, long time. So we'll, we'll probably uh, th- those value uh, points will make themselves known along the way. But right now we just have to make sure that people um, are, are happy and healthy and, and are able to get through day to day. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that perspective. I really, again, want to appreciate you taking time to, to do this show with me. I, and, and again, like I've been trying to figure out how I can stay connected with people doing this. I thought that I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to, you know, I, I, I switched you around. I didn't really like having to like, try to move you around to different formats of recording, but I, I'm really glad that we figured this out because yeah. I really, I really love what you had to say. Um, everyone, please check out his book, the dash culture Right. Yeah. Um, Justin, what else would you, uh, want to say about your materials and how, uh, how people can find out more about the book or about conferences you're speaking at or connecting with you on social media and whatnot? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so personally, uh, on social media, I'm at pseudo room, P-S-E-U-D-O room, just on effectively everything. For the book proper, uh, the-culturebook.com, like Anthony said, uh, is the URL. The underscore culture book uh, on all other social media. And that's where things like events and speaking opportunities and podcasts are, are posted. And I do hope you'll check out the book. Uh, June 23rd is when the second edition comes out. Like I said, I'm really proud of it and its evolution and, and those, uh, my peers who also contribute to the book, great appreciation there. But, you know, you know, again, to the point of being uh, a student of my craft and, and being as human, uh, humble as possible, I, want, I, want, I would love to hear your feedback about how I could do better and if, if there was value provided to you or not. So 
I'm an open book. I'm easily reachable uh, via, via the website or, or otherwise. So uh, I'd love to hear from you, but I, I do hope you'll check it out. Thank you for sending me uh, a copy of that. I've, I've been enjoying Absolutely. reading that. It's, it's hard to find time to like read right now in this work from home thing, but it. I've been enjoying it. I've been enjoying it uh, every time I get a moment to like sit in the bath or, you know, hang out and <laughs> in the somewhere yeah, in a closet yeah. by myself when the baby's not around. Thank you so much. <laughs> yep. Thanks for taking time again to come on the show. Thanks for tuning in to podcast and we'll talk to you next time. Cheers. Hustle is brought to you by FunSize, a digital service and product design agency that works with inspiring teams to uncover opportunities, evolve popular products, bring new businesses to market, and prepare for the future. Learn more at funsize.co. I'm Esteban Marquez, a product designer at FunSize. We'll catch you next time.